Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. We sung of this Savior, and we want to look to God's Word and see this Savior in it. I invite you to open your Bibles tonight to Psalm 45. Over the next uh, four weeks, including Christmas Eve, both morning and evening, we'll be tracing the theme of Christ as King over God's people and this call to worship the King. This is one of the most frequently mentioned and fully developed themes related to the expectation of a Messiah in the Old Testament. Ever since God came to David and said, David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And I'm going to set him over this, this king, over your descendants forever on my throne. Ever since that promise, Israel was looking with increasing clarity for their Messiah, the promised one to be a descendant of David who would rule on his throne with righteousness and rescue them from their enemies and establish God's kingdom forever. Now that's the theme we want to trace together over the next uh, few weeks. And tonight we're going to begin by looking at Psalm 45. Now you'll notice from the Hebrew title that this is titled a love song. A love song. And it's a psalm about a king and his bride and their future. It says that this psalm was written by the sons of Korah. If you were to look back to First Chronicles 6, you would see that sons of Korah are mentioned along with Asaph as uh, temple musicians, if you will, singers for the tabernacle and the temple, worship music. And uh, the sons of Korah author a few psalms, as does Asaph, as you know. So let's read this psalm together, Psalm 45. This is God's word. To the choir master, according to Lilies, a mascal of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one and in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, and the peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people. And your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. 
The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. And God, we thank you for this psalm, this chapter of your word. And we ask that you would use it in our lives, in our hearts. Lift our eyes to Christ. Draw us to him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So who is this psalm talking about? That is the question that everyone who reads this psalm asks. And as the psalmist starts, he says he's addressing his verses to the king. He addresses his verses to the king, and then he goes on to describe not only the king, but then this wedding of the king, his marriage to the daughter, a daughter, uh, who will forget her people's house and come and marry this king. Now, I think it goes without saying that most modern commentators assume that this psalm must be written to a particular king in Israel's history. Solomon is perhaps the most uh, common um, of the the guesses, if you will. Of course, the king's name is never mentioned. Uh, But the supposition, we know Solomon married a a foreign queen, and so it seems that this is uh, the sons of Korah taking pride in their king, addressing this psalm to their their king uh, of Solomon. And certainly I think uh, we might, we might as Americans not totally resonate with the idea of taking sort of pride and joy in our king, because we don't have kings. We don't like kings. We're, we're sort of anti-king from the beginning here in America. But maybe, maybe if you watched the, the funeral of, of Queen Elizabeth and saw the, the pride at which the people of Britain took uh, in their, their queen, or maybe even uh, know how many people in Britain took off to watch uh, one of the royal weddings. Maybe you might get some of that feel for why you would say, well, those who have kings, they take pride in their king, and that, that's someone they look to. And, and so certainly it's possible that someone would write a verse uh, to such a king. Uh, even John Calvin, uh, when he commented on this psalm, uh, thought that this psalm was written primarily to Solomon and about Solomon. And then he said, but the, the pictures that, that echo here in this psalm go on to talk about Jesus as well. Well, I realize that I'm uh, in a bit of an awkward place when I come tonight to disagree with John Calvin. But I don't believe that this psalm was written primarily about King Solomon or any of the other historical kings in the line of Israel. In fact, uh, as I was reading Calvin's commentary on this, the, the editor of Calvin's commentary has a note. It's a footnote. It's a little bit of a longer footnote about halfway through the psalm. And the, comment, or the editor writes this, it is somewhat strange 
that Calvin should consider this beautiful psalm as referring primarily to Solomon when he then goes on to describe how verse after verse could not really have been about Solomon. And that, I believe, is exactly the case. I think instead we need to remember that once God came to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and said, your throne is going to last forever. And I'm going to build your house, and I will establish a king on your throne forever. And once Psalm 2 came, and the psalmist wrote that God had set his son on his throne, the expectation of a future king, a king who would come, who would fully fulfill what the king over God's people should be, It was part of the genre in Israel. It was part of the mindset of Israel to look ahead to that king. And I think this psalm is not written about a historical king, but about the king, the king who would come. Charles Spurgeon, that great prince of preachers, didn't hold back when he said, those who think this psalm is about Solomon are nearsighted. And those who think that this psalm is about Solomon first and then about Jesus are cross-eyed. For this psalm is looking ahead to the king who would come. This joyful, heart-bursting theme of this psalm is not pride in the current king like the British people took in Queen Elizabeth. No, it is the confident expectation and that eager longing for the king who will come to bring God's blessings in Israel just as God had promised. And so this isn't just a wedding song. It is a love song about the promised heir of David's throne. And it talks about his character, his reign, and his family. His character, his reign, and his family. And we're going to walk through each of those tonight. So let's jump in, and I will try to defend this thesis that I'm claiming as we walk through the verses of this psalm tonight. But let's begin in verses 2 through 5. We have this psalm, a joyful psalm addressed to the king, but verses 2 through 5 describe the character of this king. Verse 2 says that his speech and appearance bear the signs of God's blessing. His appearance is beautiful, not not with the beauty of, of pop models or designer magazines or, or ripped muscles or something the way someone today might say, wow, they're a really good-looking person. Not with that kind of beauty. No, but with the excellence of character that shines through in a person's appearance and manner and bearing. As one commentator puts it, the evidence of God's presence and God's blessing is seen in the countenance and in the speech of this king. And as you read about this king, who is the most handsome among the sons of men with grace poured out upon its lips, one has to think of Luke chapter 4, verse 22, when Jesus begins his public ministry in Nazareth, and he opens the scroll of Isaiah and reads and proclaims the truth to the people, and Luke remarks, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, isn't this Joseph's son? In other words, his excellence and his grace smack of a wise and compassionate king, not 
of a carpenter's son. And that's God's presence and God's blessing shining through in his words and his countenance. But according to verses 3 and 4, this kind, this gracious king also straps a sword to his thigh and rides forth in splendor, majesty, and might for the cause of truth. We read here that this king is concerned for God's truth. He's concerned for God's ordering of things and God's plans, and he rides for the cause of truth with humility and righteousness. Now, this really is a striking description. He is concerned for righteousness. He is concerned for obedience to God's covenant. But rarely do you envision a man who's riding forth in power and majesty and might as humble. Isn't this a striking combination? He is humble and righteous in manner, yet bold and mighty. And immediately, my mind goes to another prophecy, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, where the prophet Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, and humble and mounted on a donkey. And there it is again, this king who is righteous and humble, but who's coming to bring salvation. He's mounted, but he's mounted on a donkey. This power and this humility combined in this king. And this king in his humble might and his righteous concern for truth rides out victoriously. Verse 5 says, your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. And here, here, an echo of Psalm 2. That psalm right at the beginning of Israel's Psalter, which declared to them right up front that the Lord had already set his king in Zion. And that the Lord had already declared to this king, you are my son. And there in Psalm 2, one of the promises that God made to this son, this king he'd set on his throne was, you shall break the nations with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Here is this son set on the throne, victorious over the nations. And of course, the root of this hope, the root of all of these, again, goes right back to 2 Samuel chapter 7 in God's promise to David, where God promised he would establish his kingdom through a son from David's offspring, that in him God would appoint a place for his people Israel, and that violent men would afflict them no more. That's the king that Israel is waiting for. I think it's interesting. I know that on the one hand, you can't, you can't press this point too strongly, but there is a point to the order of the Psalter. And if you were to look back over the last three Psalms, what do you have in the last three Psalms? Psalm 42, you have a longing for God and a soul cast down. Psalm 42, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Psalm 43, the psalmist cries out, why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Psalm 44, this is also the sons of Korah. 
right? You have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us and have gotten spoil. This is the experience of Israel generation after generation after generation. And where does the faithful Israelite turn in the midst of this grief and suffering, in the midst of wondering where is the Lord, where is the hope in the midst of this distress? Well, Psalm 45 tells us, in the midst of all of this, I will sing of the king. He is handsome in appearance. Grace is upon his lips. Mighty is his sword. Victorious is he in the cause of truth. Righteous and closed with humility. God promised us a king like that. And he is coming. And that is the song of hope and the pleasing theme that wells up in the psalmist's heart. That's the character of this king. But then in verses 6 through 9, we move from the king's character to the king's reign. We look at the throne of this king. And verses 6 and 7 are really the most important verses of this psalm, and they are also the verses that have stirred the most controversy. The most important verses often stir the most controversy. But the psalmist writes here, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. And if you read these verses slowly, especially if you're expecting that this psalm is written to a literal and historical king in Israel like Solomon, then these verses are confusing. What, is this, what are these verses saying and who are they addressing? There are some who believe that this verse, verse 6, does address Solomon. But the problem is, it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the term Elohim here, or God, it can be used, it can be used as sort of a group to refer to angels or judges. The Psalms certainly refer to uh, the angels at one point with that word, or, or judges in their role that word, but it is completely another thing and totally without precedent in Scripture to address a particular person and call them Elohim. Scripture does not speak to a human in that way. So it seems not possible that verse 6 would be addressed to a, a king like Solomon with the word Elohim. Oh, Elohim. That's not used of a man, it's used of God. Others propose that verse 6 is speaking to God. Something like, God, your throne, that is the throne of your people, is forever and ever. The problem with this is that verse 7 says, therefore God has anointed you. In other words, if verse 6 is speaking to God, and then verse 7 says, God has anointed you, a switch has happened that's not indicated anywhere in the text. The two verses have to be addressing someone different. No, it seems clear that verses 6 and 7 are addressing the same person, a king who is addressed as Elohim, as God. It seems clear that the king in the line of David is addressed as God in verse 6, but as one who serves God in verse 7. How in the world does that work? One of the foremost Old Testament scholars of our day, Alec Machir, and I appreciate uh, him because here's a modern scholar who nails this. He says, this is an unequivocal assertion of the deity 
of the Davidic king who is to come. The king who's to come in the line of David is divine, according to this verse. But, coupled with verse 7, this poses an Old Testament enigma. Because how can the Messiah be both God and a devotee of God? The answer has to await the New Testament. That's exactly it, isn't it? Anyone who would say that this psalm is primarily about a king in the Old Testament has to wrestle with these verses because they don't fit in that sense. The answer to this enigma has to await the announcement of Gabriel that a baby would be born to Mary whose name would be Emmanuel, God with us. The answer has to await John's summary in John 1.1, the word was with God and the word was God. The answer has to await Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Because if there was any confusion among any commentators about who Psalm 45 is talking about, Scripture tells us. Because Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 quotes these verses. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. And it says it's talking about Jesus. And so Scripture answers the question for us. And the answer to the enigma of the Old Testament is Jesus, the Son of God, became man for us. And what is this king's reign going to be like? Well, the psalmist says his reign will be eternal and it will be righteous. His throne is forever and ever. And again, you have to ask, how can a particular king's throne be forever and ever? One particular human king can't have an everlasting throne. But again, this goes right back to God's promise in 2 Samuel 7. God promised David, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And we might say, well, that just means that there's always going to be someone from David's line on the throne. It doesn't mean that one person's throne is going to be forever. But that's not how this psalmist interprets it. And it's certainly not what Gabriel said when he showed up in Mary's bedroom to announce the birth of a baby to this young and unmarried girl. And Gabriel says to Mary, and the Lord God is going to give to him, your child, the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And to his kingdom, there will be no end. Did you hear that? He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And that's what Psalm 45 was anticipating. Well, how was he qualified for this role as everlasting king? Well, verse 6 says, because his scepter is upright and he has loved righteousness. His perfect righteousness and his faithfulness to lead God's people in righteousness leads God, his God, to anoint him with the oil of gladness and to exalt him in glory beyond his companions. Again, put yourself in the shoes of an Israelite. We don't know for sure which century this psalm was written in. Maybe it was the 10th, maybe it was the 9th. We don't know. You don't know exactly how this is going to be fulfilled. You have the promise. You're clinging to that promise. A perfectly righteous king with a scepter of uprightness ruling forever. What's that going to be like? You don't know for sure, but 
What you do know and what continues to become clear century after century is that this is the consistent and repeated promise that God makes. Isaiah 11, which I read at the beginning of our time tonight, the prophet Isaiah strikes the same note. He promises a shoot coming from the stump of Jesse, whose belt will be righteousness around his waist, faithfulness on his loins, who will kill the wicked with the breath of his lips. That's the same, the same terms that are being used here in Psalm 45, aren't they? Or how about Jeremiah 33:14? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. That's the same promise again and again, repeated over and over again. And this is ever the hope of Israel. This is the overflowing, delightful theme of God's people. A king, gracious, humble, but righteous and victorious over the enemies of God's people. A king who is a servant of God who will come and sit on the throne forever. And would you just pause for a minute and reflect on the kind of safety and security and hope we can find in that kind of a king? In a world of brokenness and sin, in a world of oppression and evil, when morality is thrown to the winds and power threatens to oppress and relationships are broken and we realize again and again how little control we have over anything, we're promised a king who rides forth in majesty and might with righteousness and humility and graciousness. I don't know your individual situation tonight, But isn't that the kind of king and the kind of savior that we need? If you know your own sinfulness and brokenness, come to this king. If you know your anxieties and despairs, come to this king. He is Jesus. And he invites us from all the nations to turn and to follow him in faith. This is the promised one. Well, we've seen the king and his character. We've seen the king and his reign. But there's even more good news awaiting for us in verses 10 through 17. And here's where many would say, well, verses 10 through 17, these seem to be describing a wedding. If they're describing a wedding, how are they talking about Jesus? Well, these verses do describe the king's family. It's perfectly natural that from ages past, the psalmist would be looking ahead to the king and to his family. But let's look at the words that are said here. Start in verse 10. Verses 10 through 15 address the king's bride. And in verse 10, here, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. She is called to forget her people and her father's house. Literally, this verse calls her to hear, see, turn, and forget. It's a four-verb pile-up here, emphasizing the need, as one commentator puts it, to put the past behind her and find her all in all in her new relationship. She is no longer of her father's house. She is now of the king's house. 
She is no longer of the people she used to be part of. She has a new name, and it is his name. And she can't attempt to hold her old identity alongside her new one. Yes, this is a description of what happens in a marriage, but how much more is it a description of what happens to Christ's people who are to no longer remember their old family, their old father's house, but are to forget them and turn to their new identity in their king. Verse 11 adds that given her marriage, the king is now her lord and she is to bow to him. There is submission to his leadership that is necessary. She's to follow him. These verses describe a costly death to herself, leaving her old identity and following her king in submission to him. But this death is not described in dire or grim terms. There's no, there's no uh, weeping and sadness here. It's, in fact, quite the opposite because verse 11 says that the king will desire her beauty. She is to turn from her old people and her old house to one who loves her and desires her and has come to get her and to make her his. But if that wasn't enough, look to verse 12. Verse 12 adds that she will be exalted among the nations for her relationship to this king. Verse 13 describes her as glorious, decked in splendor. And verse 15 says that joy and gladness characterize her and her companions as they enter the palace of the king. Now maybe some of you ladies were or are the the type who from the time you were in middle school, you love to look at wedding magazines and you like to think about what your wedding was going to be like. And maybe by the time you actually came to get married, you'd been planning your wedding for 10 years and you know what it was going to look like. And, And I know some who were like that. But if you were ever like that, I bet you could never imagine a wedding anything near as rich or as glorious as what's described here in Psalm 45. All glorious in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold, led to the king with bridesmaids following with joy and gladness. This this is a beautiful picture to look forward to. And so was her leaving and submission a death? Yes, it was that but a death that leads to love, to honor, to life, to joy with the king forever. This is a glorious exchange. She comes to her Savior. And if you step back here for a minute, I think you'll acknowledge that even as these verses give us a pretty good picture of of marriage, this sounds similar to Ephesians 5 and Genesis 2 and other uh, marriage passages where a husband and wife leave their father and mother and cleave to one another and the wife submits to her husband who loves her for his good for her good leading to joy there's an echo here but why does psalm 45 sound like a passage about marriage like ephesians 5 well it's because paul tells us that marriage is a picture of christ and the church paul tells us that the two will sound similar but psalm 45 in the end is a picture of jesus the Davidic king with his bride, with his people whom he has redeemed. And if that's the case, then there's certainly some important instruction here for us, isn't there? If you and I are to be Christians, that is part of the bride of Christ, our lives should be marked by a definitive break from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Forget those former people, that former manner of life, 
that former identity that belonged to us. And our lives should take on a new name in submission to our new Lord, following him as our head. We aren't our own anymore. We belong to the king. But the flip side is that we now know the king's love as he has desired his church and his bride. And he has come from the throne of glory to lay down his life to get us and to make us his. And the reward that we find is glory and joy as we come into the king's presence and into the fellowship of his love. Psalm 45 isn't quite done, though. It ends with verses 16 and 17. And you can't tell it in English because our pronouns in English don't have genders to them. But verses 16 and 17, when they talk about you and your, that's masculine. These are addressing the king again. And here we find that the king's family doesn't end with his marriage. The psalmist foresees that the marriage of the king and his bride will multiply into a family of sons and of princes who fill the earth. The end of the story is the praise of this king by all nations for all generations. You see that in verse 17? His name will be remembered in all generations and nations will praise him forever and ever. When I read this, I can't help but think of the book of Revelation. Revelation 19. When the marriage of the Lamb arrives and the bride clothes herself in linen, which is the righteous deeds of the saints. And then the Lamb of God rides out called faithful and true, judging in righteousness, striking down the nations and ruling them with a rod of iron. In Revelation 21, then the angel shows John this bride, the wife of the Lamb, the new Jerusalem where God will dwell with his people forever and ever. And they bring into it the glory of the honor of the nations and his servants will worship or bow down to the Lamb. And then they reign with him forever and ever. And Revelation in these final chapters gives us the perfect picture of the fulfillment of Psalm 45. What a vision this psalm gives us. What a vision of the king who's coming, of the king and his character, the king and his reign, of the king and his family. The psalmist, of course, was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit He had 2 Samuel 7 to go on, perhaps Psalm 2 to go on, looking forward to this righteous king who'd been promised. But at Christmas, we see the further step in this promise. We see the realization of this hope as Christ has come, God made flesh in the line of David to claim his throne. I don't know for sure if C.S. Lewis had Psalm 45 in mind when he wrote this about Christmas. You might not think of Psalm 45 as a Christmas psalm, but here's what C.S. Lewis wrote about Christmas. He said, The birth of Christ is the arrival of the great warrior and the great king, and also the great lover and the great bridegroom himself, whose beauty surpasses that of men. Isn't that Psalm 45? Now, We know this king and this lover of his people. And the question is, have you turned to follow him? Is your trust and delight in this king? Of course, even as we know this king, we still wait as God's people did for centuries. This Advent, we know the king. 
but the full and final vision of Psalm 45 we're still waiting for. And as we do so, may we stand in awe of the glory of Jesus Christ, and may we stand in awe of the privilege and the joy and the glory that is offered to us as we come to him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this psalm, this psalm which peeks into the future and considers the promise of God and the Son of God, God himself who would come anointed by God as this righteous and humble king, a king who would desire his bride, a king who would be head over his family, whose sons would rule as princes throughout the earth, a son whose reign would go on forever and ever, of whom all the nations would come and bow down and give him their praise. Lord, how we thank you for Jesus Christ, who's fulfilled this psalm. May we come to him. May we rejoice in him this Christmas. We pray it in his name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.